0: Thank you for, uh, for allowing me the privilege of bringing to you God's Word this morning. I'm, I'm just going to pray for us uh, as we get started. Our Father, we come before you. We are thankful for this season uh, where we remember your Son coming to us, where we look forward to your Son's return. We ask that... You would uh, guide us by your spirit as we look into your word. Would you lead us to your truth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas. It uh, is still the Christmas season. And uh, sometimes though it's hard to remember that. It's hard to keep that in perspective as our culture speeds along to the next thing. Christmas Day was less than a week ago, and uh, it's hard to, to remember that. I'd uh, venture a lot of us have already uh, kind of skipped on to the next thing, which is tonight. It's New Year's Eve. Do you have any plans for tonight? Do you have friends coming over or are you going to a party? Or if you're like me, I'm an introvert, uh, I would rather stay in. I have small children, so it's probably not going to be a wild night. Maybe more of a quiet evening in. Uh, Are you going to brave the crowds tonight and the cold to pack into Times Square to see the ball drop? No? (laughs) Some people uh, take this time of the year to stop and evaluate the past year and look forward to a new year with new resolutions and new goals. And it has been quite the year. A quick look at the major headlines of 2017 reminds us that uh, there was a lot that happened. There was a new president who was sworn into office. There's been some political scandals that have followed. There's been international tensions that have riveted up with North Korea. There's the Me Too movement, which uh, kicked off an unprecedented exposure of sexual harassment and assault uh, that's just permeated through a culture. There were major mass shootings in Texas and Las Vegas, and terrorism was a major headline again. There were protests against racial inequality that marked the NFL season, and the removal of Confederate monuments and the violence at protests in Charlottesville. It highlighted the racial tensions that still haven't been fully resolved in this country. There were less dire things too, and one of the things, one of the big news news articles that popped up in the year end. Uh, Reviews were uh, things like the solar eclipse, but generally news organizations focused on uh, the ills of our society. And some of these things will be remembered for a long time to come. Some maybe not so much, Uh, time will tell. And I think the same is true when it comes to remembering events that have marked our individual lives this year. For some of us, it was a rather uneventful year. For others, it was a big deal. Maybe it was a job promotion or a career change, a big birthday, maybe a major transition in life, a birth or a death. Tonight, when the ball drops in Times Square, we will mark the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018. It's kind of a curious tradition, this ball drop. Author Scott Hewler calls it the greatest single moment of public timekeeping in the world. Did you ever wonder why a ball is dropped? It actually goes back to a now outdated method of commun- communicating what time is. It's hard to imagine in our day, but precise timekeeping was not a big deal for most of human history. Church bells tolling on the hour began in 1335 in Milan. And watches didn't even have a minute hand until the 18th century. As the Industrial Revolution took hold, it was actually the shipping industry that needed more precise time measurements. Ship's captains needed precise clocks to coordinate their celestial readings, which led to the invention of the chronometer in 1761. And this created a problem. How do all the ships coordinate their devices? The solution was a highly visible marker that could be viewed from a ship by telescope, a large ball. When this ball dropped at the same time every day, the ships could coordinate their chronometers. And now advancements in technology quite quickly made the need for these markers irrelevant, except for in ceremonies and tourist attractions, And one was actually incorporated into Times Square in 1907 when fireworks were banned. And this leaves us with a a very public display of timekeeping that is actually still broadcast around the world. So with all of this, the question I want us to ask is what do we need to mark our lives as Christians? What defines our timekeeping and structures our days? What makes sense of the big events in our lives? Is it the school year? Is it long weekends and holidays that mark our time? Is it the stock market? Or is it the next video game release or big movie event? The next generation of iPhone? Is it the latest fashion trend? seems that a lot of the public events by which we mark time lately are centered around consumer products. But let's turn to our text. Uh, It's a good Christmas text. It's the gospel reading, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Uh, You can turn to it in your uh, bulletins this morning, or if you have a Bible, and I invite you to turn to it there and follow along. The gospel of John you will have already noticed from our earlier reading is a bit different than other gospel accounts. The Christmas stories we have probably focused on through Advent and on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are usually drawn out of Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts. There we have the more familiar stories of angels appearing to Zechariah and Mary, the scandal of a teenage pregnancy, a baby born and laid in a manger, shepherds and wise men visiting, flight to Egypt, and the horror of a jealous political leader ordering the slaughter of children. But in John's account, these specific details are absent. It's not that they aren't important, it's just that John is focusing us on something else. He uses what seems like rather abstract, even philosophical terms light darkness, the word, glory. You might be tempted to think that John is not concerned with history at all that much. You might even start to wonder about just how much John is concerned with matter, the the physical creation. And this has led some people to call John's gospel a spiritual gospel. But in fact, the opposite might be a better way of describing it. John is very concerned with history, He's very concerned with God's good creation. Spiritual reality is just as important as physical reality. And he's actually taking what the other Gospels have laid down, the other Gospel writers have laid down in their narratives, and he pushes it a bit further. He emphasizes Jesus' divinity and his humanity. John's stretching our understanding of Jesus' relationship to time. We can see this by comparing the four gospel accounts together. The gospel of Mark sets Jesus' life in the context of the prophets Isaiah and Malachi. He looks back a few hundred years and he quotes them in Mark 1. Matthew's gospel goes a step further and traces back Jesus' lineage to the patriarch Abraham. Luke goes even further in his genealogy and connects Jesus right to Adam. But John goes right back to the beginning, in the beginning. Do you hear echoes of Genesis 1 here? So what we find here in John 1 is an intricate table of contents, an overview of what his gospel is going to be all about. Right here in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, often called the prologue, is a preview of the life and ministry of Jesus. There's so much packed in here that one could realistically preach a sermon on about each verse. But this morning, I'm not even gonna try to highlight everything that's in here. But what I'm going to do is I'm gonna take a look at three very important stories that John ties together and unites in one person, Jesus, the Word. And then uh, I want to look at how our stories intersect with the biblical narrative and perhaps challenges us regarding how we spend our time. The first story I've already alluded to is the creation narrative in Genesis 1. And here we turn to John 1, verses 1 to 8. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. but came to bear witness about the light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John introduces us to the Word. He won't identify the Word explicitly with Jesus by name until the end of our passage, but for now he's directing us to the creation story in Genesis. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, It is here that we see God creating all things by speaking them into existence. The Word was present in the beginning. The Word actually exists before all of creation is made. And further, it is actually through the Word that all things are made. The Word is eternal. The Word is divine. And the Word, while distinguished from the Father, is in deep communion with Him. Jesus is God. Our contact, our context for understanding who Jesus is has transcended time. He was there before anything else was and through him, it was all created. John goes on to play with the themes of light and life and darkness in John one verses four through eight. These are allusions to Genesis again. It's in Genesis one, three to five that we see the separation of light and darkness and in Genesis 1, 20 to 31, we see that we see the creation of living beings. In John, it's revealed that it is from the Word that light and life come. And John develops this through his entire gospel by focusing on the conversations that Jesus has. He steers away from long speeches and shows how Jesus converses with his mother and the disciples, and Mary and Martha, and with God the Father. The word is not lofty and disconnected from creation. The word is intimately involved in it. Jesus states that I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. And he states that I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. Blind people see. Lazarus is raised from the dead. There is this new creation springing forth when Jesus walks the earth. Again, these are themes that John will develop more fully in his gospel. And so they're present in his introduction. And then seemingly out of place in our passage is this reference to John the Baptist's witness about the word in verse 8. But it's not, not totally out of place. It, it, it's paralleled with another reference to John the Baptist in verse 15. These references are there to, to deliberately further ground us in the story of salvation. John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus and further anchors the word's entrance into his very creation that he established. John the Baptist represents the great prophetic tradition of God's people, showing that the whole story of God's people is looking towards this event. But there's another story from the Old Testament that the Apostle John draws into his prologue. Skipping down to John 1:14 to 18, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The story being referenced here is from the book of Exodus. Notice I skipped over the middle verses of 9 to 13 in our passage. We'll come back to these in a moment. Well, the first eight verses of our passage are are pointing forward in our passage. The last four verses are are pointing backwards in our passage. And they do so by evoking the story of the tabernacle that symbolized God's glorious presence among his people. In the Exodus, in Exodus chapters 33 to 35, we enter into the story of God's people shortly after they Worship the golden calf that they constructed while they were waiting for Moses to get back from receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 33, we're told about the tent of meeting, where God would speak to Moses face to face. In this particular meeting, the issue that Moses is discussing with God, here in chapter 33, Is whether or not God's presence would continue to go with them as they journeyed into the promised land. There had been controversy as the golden calf had been constructed and God's people turned away from him as, as Moses was listening to him. God's presence with his people was a big deal, it's what marked them as God's people. And closely tied to God's presence was the glory of God. God's glory was understood as the visible manifestation of God's power. It carried this sense of weightiness. It was often associated with fire or light. We're told that when God met with Moses, Moses' face shone with light, so much that it bothered everyone else and he had to have a veil put over his face. The author Eugene Peterson says, Glory is a light-filled word spilling out the extravagant brightness that marks God's presence among us. It is also used to ascribe honor and dignity and weightiness to mountains and weather and men and women. But most prominent, but the most prominent use in our scriptures is in relation to God. In John 1 verse 14, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that existed in eternity before time began becomes flesh and dwells among us. Literally, the word means tabernacled, the word tabernacled with us. This imagery is straight from Exodus. The word took up residence in his creation, set up a tent, The visible manifestation of God's power, his glory, came into the world. Now, by becoming flesh, we have an incarnation. There's a deliberate use of tabernacle imagery here in John. And there's also, at the same time, an imagery to the light that characterizes the word. So we're having these two stories kind of mixing together. And it it is so striking to see that the glory of God is made explicit in the words coming to the world. It's not about us escaping the world to participate in some sort of glory. It's the filling of creation with the fullness of God's presence as it's meant to be. The place where we encounter God's glory is here, and it's centered on Jesus coming to earth. And yet at the same time, we remember that we're we're just reading the introduction to John's Gospel. This incarnational glory is seen in the entirety of Jesus' time on earth. Beholding his glory does not ex- exclude things like the cross. In fact, it's on the cross that Jesus prays to the Father, glorify your name. The first time Jesus Christ is mentioned in this section on glory in chapter 1 is in verse 17. The word taking on flesh in the person of Jesus reveals God's glory to the world. And this glory is seen in a teenage pregnancy out of wedlock, in a newborn child set in a feeding trough because his parents couldn't get room at an inn. It's seen in a family forced to flee to another country, Egypt, because Herod is killing children. Somehow God's glory is bursting through these all too human experiences and not necessarily just good experiences. But his glory is also seen in changing water into wine at a wedding feast, the Son of God talking to an outcast woman at the well, healing a blind man on the Sabbath, Jesus' refusal to stone a woman caught in adultery and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We've moved here into the third story, the one that ties all the other stories together. In the middle of these two stories, the one of the eternal word and the other of the glory of God, we find the focal point of our passage. The Genesis imagery bleeds into it from the front end and the Exodus imagery bleeds into it from the back end. The word of God and the glory of God overlap with each other in the story of Christmas. It's the story of Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh. Let me read verses 9 to 14 of John 1. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Christmas story, the story of the incarnation, is where all the narrative strands of scripture come together. Everything focuses in on Jesus but this baby grows up and walks the earth. And John the Baptist cries out, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This light of the world, this light that made the world is not received by his own people, the people that he made. There's rejection. Jesus walks the road to the cross and is crucified. Yet even in this act, his glory is made known. Jesus prays in John 17, shortly before he's betrayed and led to the cross. When he'd spoken these words, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you, ha- whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had, before, had with you before the world existed. The glory of God bursts forth in the strangest of places. In a birth, and in a crucifixion, in a resurrection, In the giving of the Holy Spirit, it will burst forth in the return of Jesus. Jesus makes God known to us. And we come to the center of our passage in John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What happens when we encounter the word? Well, quite simply, we're required to make a choice. Will we receive him? Will we believe him? Receiving and believing are essentially the same thing here for John. Will we let the eternal word that created all things transform us and reconcile us to God? Will we be beacons that reflect God's glory to the world? So now we come back to the question of how do we mark time in our lives? Are our lives marked and ordered by this story? Do the seasons of Advent and Christmas and Easter shape us, or do we just rush through them? Are our days structured by this story of the Word made flesh? Have we let it seep into the core of our being? Do we remind each other of this reality each day? Do we invite others into this reality? What does a life look like that isn't dictated by the seconds that tick by on your watch or your phone or your next big purchase? It's not dictated by your vacation time or the fiscal year. What does a life look like that is ordered by the story of the eternal word made presence to us in the person of Jesus? Can I challenge us this year to sit in this story? Let it form us. Let it shape us. Let me pray. Father, you who sent your word to us, you who revealed your glory to us in a child. in a crucified Savior, you who reside with us. We ask that you would open our eyes to your presence in our lives each day. Show us how to order our lives according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.